So that brings us to chapter 14. And then one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go over to the Philistine garrison that is opposite. But he did not let his father know. Probably because he knows his dad's going to take credit. And nothing will happen afterwards. Now Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah, sitting. Remember the last person that was sitting? Eli. The army that was with him numbered about 600 men. Now Ahijah was carrying an ephod, and he was the son of Atab, who was the brother of Ichabod, a son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of Yahweh in Shiloh. The army was unaware that Jonathan had left. Now what's wrong here? Not only is he sitting, but what's happening? Anybody pick up on this? Who is Ahijah ultimately the descendant of? Eli. What is he doing for Saul right now? He's acting as a priest. Is this right or wrong? Why? The judgment of God was that they will no longer be able to be priests at God's altar. God said that every single descendant of Eli is no longer allowed to be priest. 15, 20 years later, you find out a descendant of Eli is serving as a priest. And who made him priest? Saul. And now you're like, wait a minute. Ahijah is serving as a priest. Now, here's the thing. Did Yahweh's prophecy not come true? No, because Yahweh doesn't always promise that prophecies immediately fulfill themselves. Sometimes they take time and they implement. But the other thing, too, is he said they'll never serve at my altar. And Ahijah is not at the altar. In fact, every time you see him, he's always out in the field somewhere. He has got an illegitimate, disqualified priest serving as his priest after he just served as a priest when he wasn't supposed to. This guy's not obeying the law in any kind of a way. And remember one of the first criteria of the Deuteronomy king was to copy the Torah. And right now he's violating the moral call, call, code of the law. And he's disobeyed Saul. So he's got an illegitimate priest now serving and speaking or making atonement on his behalf. How can an illegitimate priest make atonement for you when you're not even obeying God or even repenting to begin with? Chapter 14, verse 4. Now there was a steep cliff on each side of the pass through which Jonathan intended to go to reach the Philistine garrison. One cliff was named Bozes and the other Sinai. The cliff to the north was closer to Michmash and the one south close to Geba. He is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, literally. He is walking through a giant valley with a sheer cliff rising up. We know it's a big, big cliff because we're going to be told later that it takes him on his hands and knees to crawl up it. That's a steep cliff when you're crawling up on your hands and knees. And there's one on either side, and we're told that there's Philistines at the top of Michmash, which means all they do is just drop arrows on them in a valley where they can't escape. That's where Jonathan's going. But why is he going? Because he wants to get himself some Philistines. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Come on, let's go up to that garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps Yahweh will intervene for us. Nothing can prevent Yahweh from delivering, whether many or few. Is this the son of Saul? Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, Come! Let's defeat the Philistines like we're supposed to as Israelite people. Nothing can stop us if Yahweh is with us, whether we have a giant army or there's just two of us. That's faith. He's going to go up against the entire military outposts all by himself. And we're going to find out later, he has to climb up before he gets to them on his hands and knees. 
And he's confident that he'll win because Yahweh's with him. You know what's so sad about this? Is Jonathan will never begin to be, be able to be king because of the constant of his father. Remember, nobody sins in a vacuum. It seems unfair, but that's life. Many of us are reaping the consequences of our parents, or we've missed out. We're reaping the consequences of presidents that we don't agree with. But he will never, ever get to be king because of the sin of his family. But is he complaining? You don't understand the family I came from. This is not right. If you only knew my dad, you understand why I'm so lazy and angry and bitter and mean. But he doesn't. He says, I don't care. I'm going to go obey God. And it doesn't matter if I have an army or just the two of us, we're going to win. Because God is with us. Jonathan is an incredible man of God. Now, what is an armor bearer? A lot of times when we think of armor bearer, we think of like this like military caddyshack, okay? <laughs> like like you're they're out in the field and this armor bearer's just like running behind him with all these swords, and he's like, Oh, we're going against five Philistines. Give me the number five iron sword. <laughs> That's not an armor bearer. That kinda is, um, but it's not completely. An armor bearer would have been like a lieutenant in the military. He would have been like a right hand commander kind of a guy. He does carry the armor but not like this massive amount of armor, just like a few extra weapons, a spear, the shield. But basically what the armor bearer is, he's the guy who's got your six. So when you see SWAT go into a building and they go in and they'll grab the belt of the guy in front of them and they'll go in as like one man team, even though there's a whole bunch of them and they're all, and they're protecting or the military and you have a guy who's facing backwards, kind of backwards, not exactly. And they're watching each other and taking care of each other. That's what armor bearer is. Now remember, killing people is not as easy what Hollywood makes it out to be. <laughs> With a handgun or a sword. In some ways, people are really easy to kill. Like the way that some people die, like just choking on water or something like that, you're like, wow, we're really fragile. But in other ways too, it's like it's really difficult to really attack the human body. I mean, that's why they invented the guillotine because of the pre previous, before the guillotine, if the guy cut your head off, it would take three or four hits before you could finally get your head off. That's Don suffering. But you can't just like, first of all, unlike Hollywood, you pick up a broadsword, those things are heavy. And you just don't go through the crowd, just swing and you're around. Because the minute you swing your sword, what have you just done? You're, you're exposed to all these people. And remember, there's not, it's not like the red coats where you just face off each other. Everybody's gathered around each other. In fact, in war, if you read first-hand accounts of people who fought in the ancient world, they describe it as total hell, which war is. But what they describe is as they first come in, remember, nobody's, there's no like blue team and red team. Everybody's wearing like drab, brown, gray, black clothes because that's all they had. They come running and slamming into each other. Now, in the movies, they always slam each other, and the director always says, okay, now keep, like, at least 10 feet around you, so it's really cool when the main character is just, like, swinging around. But if you've ever yelled, oh, don't do this, but if you yell fire in a, like, a building somewhere, does everybody just keep 10 feet? <laughs> they slam into each other, and people get trampled and die. And so in these accounts, they talk about slamming into each other, and they're literally, like, their arms pinned against their body. They're stuck in this giant million crowd of foe and enemy. And basically what begins to happen is people begin to trip and fall and they go on the ground and they get, just get trampled to death. And when enough people get trampled to death, then you have enough room to start swinging your sword. That's the first people who die in battle. That, that, that sucks. That's depressing. That's demoralizing. 
Then on top of that, when you start fighting, you don't just swing because everybody's around you, so you expose your side, that kind of stuff. And you don't stab people in because then your sword's in somebody's body and you have to pull it all the way back out before you get back in. Meanwhile, this thing's heavy, so if you've got momentum going one way, you've got to change that momentum and bring it back. And if all you're doing is just this, that's not going to go well. The same time people's arms are being cut off, their heads are being slammed in with swords, blood is going everywhere, brain matter, you're beginning to slip in this stuff on the ground, you're being splattered, it's hell. And it becomes very disoriented. So a lot of times what you do, you're just going for shots that take them to the ground. You've got a sword, a lot of times the swords are actually much shorter for close combat, and you're mostly just like swiping, really quick swipes. You're going for neck, you're going for the gut, you're going for the arms, things that would make them drop their sword, things that would make them go to the ground. They're not exactly dying. And what they're going to do is they're probably just going to bleed out to death. Or they're going to just suck it up with adrenaline and back up again. And that's basically what the Bible... And then when the Romans come along, they're going to turn themselves into a war machine. And they're going to have a very efficient way of doing it. But until they come along, it's just, just real quick sweeps. Just so you're not swinging your sword all over the place, you're not going in and out, you're just trying to take people down in pain. Now, one of the things that the armor bearer does is he protects your back and a close counters where it's just the few of you. But the other thing is he's like the double shot. You ever watch movies where they, like, they kill the bad guy, like in Die Hard or something like that, and they shoot him, and then all of a sudden like the guy just like pops back up again. They're like, oh my gosh, we thought he was dead. We got to shoot him again. And you're like... But the real good guys, I know this is going to sound really bad, they're the ones that go up to the head and shoot them twice because that's not even, there's no getting back up from that. Works with zombies too. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the armor bear is. So you're just swiping and trying to kill them so that they not kill them but wound them so they fall to the ground. And the armor bearer comes with a spear behind them to stab, 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 stab to make sure that they don't get back up again. And that's war in the ancient world. Jonathan and the armor bearer going in against the enemy together. There's nobody but them. And basically, Jonathan is going to wound them so they fall, and the armor bearer is going to come behind them and just stab him, stab him on the ground. He's the double tap to make sure they don't get back up. And Jonathan's like, we can do this. Here's what's amazing. He has a command from God to kill the Philistines. He knows that God can do it for him, but Jonathan still doesn't make any assumptions he still decides he's going to go to God and ask permission. It's amazing. It's the armor bearer says, I'm with you, heart and life. He has the same faith as Jonathan. And some of you, if we were armor bearers, we'd be like, are you crazy? <laughs> we climb up this hill and go against people outnumbered? He's probably been experiencing a lot of amazing things with Jonathan. And he's got the same faith. Verse 8, Jonathan replied, all right, We'll go over to those... Oh, by the way, by calling them uncircumcised people, he's not making a biological statement about who they are. He is making... The point, remember, is circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So what he's saying is those non-Abrahamic covenant people. Like if I were to say those non-ringed people over there. They're single people. And so that's what he's referring to them as. So John replied, All right, we'll go over to those men and fight them. If they say to us, Stay put until we approach you, we will stay right there and go and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up against us, we will go up. For in that case, Yahweh has given them into our hand, and it will be a sign to us. Now, this isn't testing God to see if he's capable of doing it like Gideon. 
He's not throwing a fleece out and saying, if you are capable, God, then make this fleece wet and the ground dry. He already knows that God is capable. This is a test to see if God wants him to do it. And so he says, look, we'll, we'll stick our heads out of the, the hole in the ground like a bunch of groundhogs. And if the Philistines say, hey, stay there, we're going to come down and teach you a lesson, so to speak, then we'll know that God is saying, don't attack. It's not his will. And if they say, come up here, then we'll trust God. Jonathan is the shining example of what everybody in the book of Judges should have been. He knows that God can give him the victory. Gideon was like, who, me? Let's raise an army. Jonathan's like, we just need the two of us. Gideon tested God to see if he was capable. Jonathan's like, I just want to know if God wants me to do it right now. Very, very, very different. When they made themselves known to the Philistine garrison, the Philistines said, look at the Hebrews coming out of their holes in which they hide themselves. Then the men of the garrison said to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come on up here so we can teach you a thing or two. Then Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up behind me, for Yahweh has given them into our hands. Jonathan crawled up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer following behind him. That's faith. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to make yourself known. The Philistines see you. They cry out to you and say, come on up here. We'll teach you a lesson. And you're like, okay, now we're going to climb this hill on our hands and knees. All the way at the top, why they've got arrows or swords, right? Rocks to throw down on us. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. But he does it because he trusts God. He asks God, should I do it? And God said, yes. And he believes that he will stay alive for the climb and all the way through the battle. And so it says, then the men of the garrison said, or then Jonathan said his armor bearer, come on. Jonathan crawled up on his hands and knees, armor struck, and behind them, sorry, Jonathan crawled up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer following behind him. And Jonathan struck down the Philistines while his armor bearer came along behind him and killed them. In this initial skirmish, Jonathan's armor bearer struck down about 20 men in an area that measured a half of an acre. That's huge. Now listen, I don't care how good of a fighter you are, nobody takes out 20 men all by themselves. Not even Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee. Now, if you ever watch Hollywood movies where they get in fight scenes and like 30 guys surround them and they're like, oh, this is going to be so cool. They're going to take them all out. If you've ever really paid close attention, they all just like surround them and they all just kind of like do that, like hovering, bouncing, I'm ready to fight kind of thing. And they all take turns, one, maybe two at a time come at them. And then when they get beat up and thrown to the ground, then two more come and two more come. And it's like, that's so dumb. If you really have a guy trying to kill you and invade your territory, just all 30 of you rush him. Even if he had a machine gun, two of you might die, but the rest are going to get him. But the director said this is going to be way cooler. <laughs> and probably the audience doesn't get that this is what's really happening. But that's what happens. They just, they just take turns. And they notice. But nobody does it in real life. Nobody just watches their friends getting the crap beaten out of them in a military skirmish and just waits their turn. Like they're at Cedar Point, the tickets sit only one at a time. That doesn't happen. <laughs> they're rushing all at once, and yet God gives them the ability to defeat them. A half an acre. A half an acre is about, a whole acre is about 4,300 square, 4, square feet. And that's, this is also where we get the word yoke. I think I mentioned this a while ago, but acre comes from the word yoke. 
And a yoke is what two cattle yoked together could plow in a whole day. So, and that's what an acre is today. So, in around 2,000 square feet, Jonathan takes out 20 people. That's amazing. This is God. We have not seen this. We've never seen anything like this before. Gideon was supposed to do this, but dragged his feet, raised an army, and questioned God. And then Samson kind of did this, but it was all shrouded in his like vengeance and narcissistic immaturity. But now, for the first time ever, we've seen somebody who's single-handedly defeating the enemy because Yahweh's with them and is totally 100% trusting God, completely faithful and obedient. We've never seen that combination before. And Jonathan is doing it. This is amazing. This is what's going to begin to turn the tide. Then it says, verse 15, Fear overwhelmed those who were in the camp, those who were in the field, and all the army and the garrison and the raiding bands. They trembled, and the ground shook, and this fear was caused by God. God sends an earthquake and fills them with fear. Saul's watchmen at Gibeah and territory of Benjamin looked on as the crowd of the soldiers seemed to melt away first in one direction and then another. So Saul said the army that was with him muster the troops and see who is no longer with us. When they mustered the troops, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So this is big. This isn't just the 20 people he killed. Like The entire Philistine army is now beginning to retreat because of Yahweh. And it becomes noticeable to Saul, and he realizes, wow, my son is armor-bearer, not here. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring near the ephod, for he was at that time wearing the ephod. So now he actually, for the first time ever, goes to God. He's going to go to God, and he's going to ask what he should do. Now, in certain cases, this is good because he's going to God, but other cases, it's like, you know what you're supposed to do. Samuel has already told you. It's one thing for Jonathan to seek God and ask what to do because Jonathan didn't get the direct command from the prophet. Now, it's good, but at the same time, why is he doing this? This is a big question mark. And does he really expect a response when Ahijah is the priest? When Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp was becoming greater and greater. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, that's even more significant. The one time that Saul actually decided to consult God through the priest... When the panic started getting more, Saul said, never mind. Let's not contact God or talk to him. And he aborts it. Saul and all the army that was with him assembled and marched into battle. And there they found the Philistines in total panic, killing one another with their swords. God is making the Philistines actually kill themselves. They're attacking each other. The Hebrews, who had earlier gone over to the Philistines' side, joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the Israelites had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines had fled, they too pursued in the battle. So Yahweh delivered Israel that day, and the battle shifted over to Beth-Avon. Basically, they drive them all the way out of this purple area. And it says the minute the Israelites saw they were running away, the 600 Israelites then turned into hundreds more because the people who betrayed them and ran to Philistine territory decided to come out of Philistine territory and rejoin their people again. And the people hiding in the caves decided to pop out again. And now Saul's actually going to pursue them because now it's much easier to pursue an enemy that's killing itself and running away. (laughs) And so he's going to chase them down. And who initiated all this? 
Jonathan by his faith. This is what Jesus meant, faith can move mountains. Because Jonathan's not actually doing all this, God is. Now notice it says that God delivered Israel. God delivered Israel. In God's eyes, there is a finality. That doesn't mean that it's all over with. But there is a finality where this is complete, where we did not see that before with Gibeah or Geba because Saul retreated. 